It never ceases to amaze me that modern man will scoff at stories like David and Goliath, which we are about to read in 1 Samuel 17. And at the same time, they'll flock to grocery stores and buy tabloids. Consider some of these titles that one observer found in his local supermarket. Mom to be on diet of only chicken lays huge egg. World War II bomber found on the moon. Adam and Eve's bones found in Asia. Eve was a space alien. Those things sell like crazy. And yet people say, oh, these stories like David and Goliath in the Bible. Can't believe them. Now this is one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. Everybody's familiar with it. We've heard it in Sunday school, if you had that growing up. In fact, this is the very hinge of David's life that launches him from obscurity as a shepherd in Bethlehem to somebody that all of Israel would find out about, the slayer of giants. But this story is about more than that. It's about perspective. The perspective of faith versus the perspective of fear and pessimism. Like the three guys who stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon... One was an artist, one was a minister, one was a cowboy. The artist looked at the Grand Canyon and said, what a beautiful scene to paint. The minister said, what a marvelous example of the handiwork of God. And the cowboy scratched his head and said, what a terrible place to lose a cow. (laughs) All depends on how you look at it. And there are many people who are like Saul and his army, paralyzed by fear, seeing only obstacles. And there are some, precious few, I would add, who are like David. Who, looking out at the very same thing, see an opportunity, a challenge, yes. But they have learned through life the perspective of faith. Remember that old poem? We probably all heard it. Two men looked out from prison bars. One saw mud, one saw stars. We could rewrite that about Saul and David. Two men looked out on the field one day. One saw a giant. One saw his prey. That was young David. Chapter 17 begins with a war. In fact, it opens up in the heat of the battle. Ever since Saul has been on the throne for 23 years of his reign, there has been war. For that matter, ever since Israel entered the promised land, They fought battles. So much like the Christian life. You know, a lot of people think with mistaken expectations, once I really give my heart to the Lord and really surrender to the Lord, that life's road will just smooth out. I'll have no battles. I'll be kept in this eye of the hurricane. (laughs) Ha ha, baloney. That's when battles begin. As soon as David went from shepherd to the anointed one by Saul, we see him on the battlefield in this chapter. We see him facing the antagonism of his brothers in this chapter. And later on, we will see him become the target of King Saul as Saul tries to play, pin the spear on the musician over and over again. The child of God is never at peace with the children of the devil. That just comes with the territory. I remember an assistant pastor who came on staff and the first week, he had it rough. He just saw 
reality, a barrage of things, people's lives, hassles, and he was, at the end of the week, he was beat up. And all I could think to say is, hey man, welcome to the ministry. That happens. Let's begin with seeing David's problem in the first few verses. His name is Goliath of Gath. He's really Saul's problem, but David will make him his problem as the chapter goes on. And by the way, there are, as you can see, 58 verses. So we have to be very selective in which ones we read this morning because of our time. The Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together. They encamped in the valley of Elah. They drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side. Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley between them. A champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had a bronze armor on his legs, bronze javelin between his shoulders. The staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. His iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield-bearer went before him. And he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come up to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, we will be your servants. But if I prevail and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Goliath was a different kind of soldier. He's a big boy. Shocking to see, intimidating to hear. He was a giant. Remember back when Moses sent spies into the land and they came back and they said, they be giants in this land. They're pretty big. They were called Anakim. In Joshua 11, it says that not all of them were driven out. Let me read that verse. Joshua 11 says, None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel, but they remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. And where's Goliath from? Gath. He's one of the leftovers who becomes sort of a soldier of fortune, a mercenary, a Philistine to intimidate the children of Israel. According to conversions, he's between eight and a half and nine and a half feet tall. What was his shoe size, I wonder? These are questions moms would ask. His coat of mail or his armor weighed about 125 pounds. The head of his spear between 17 and 25 pounds, heavier than a sledgehammer. Now, because of this description, there are people who look at this and relegate the story to a myth, sort of like ancient Greek mythology. We have the Hebrew version of ancient Greek mythology, David and Goliath. They say, it's not a real story, it's an allegory meant to come up with a great lesson. Us against the big guy. That would defy archaeology and just modern accounts. 1918, 
a man known as the world's tallest man. In 1918, he was born in Alton, Illinois. His name was Robert Wadlow. When he was born, he weighed only 8 pounds, 5 ounces, normal size, not abnormal. By age 13, the kid was 7 feet 8 inches tall. That's 13. They'd hire him immediately for the basketball team. But when he was full grown, he was 8 feet 11 inches, 1 inch shy of 9 footer, which was around Goliath's size. When he died, 12 men had to carry his his 10 foot 9 inch casket to the grave. He's a big boy. And so it's not uncommon. These things happen. It's a disease of the pituitary that can cause this overgrowth. Now, the geography here is important. You've got to picture sort of a canyon with sloping hills on either side, a valley of about a mile wide in between the Valley of Elah. If you have gone on tours to Israel, we've taken you into that valley, into that very brook where David selected his stones to fight the battle. On either side, on either hill would be the armies of Israel on one side, the Philistines on the other side. They would pretty much stay, the battle line being the brook. It meant that whoever attacked first would literally fight an uphill battle. That's why each side wanted the other side to attack first. They would have the advantage, being the ones provoked. Goliath, in verse 8, has a different idea. He says, hey, forget the battle. Just give me one dude who can fight me. If you win, we're your slaves. We'll serve you. If we win, we got you. Who would be foolish enough, he thought, to do that? Certainly none of the men of Israel stepped up to the plate. Now, as intimidating as he was, it wasn't a one-time deal. Look down in verse 16. The Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening, twice a day. Reveille, he was their wake-up call probably. He would shout and thunder out his threats against the children of Israel every morning and evening for 40 days. This is intimidation meant to crush the spirits of the army of the Israelites, and it worked. If you look down in verse 11, Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Morale was low in the camp. If any of you have ever worked in group environments, whether it's business or athletics, you know that morale is important. The group morale is important. Team building is important. If the morale gets low, the output will be very poor. Saul knew that, but he was as scared as the rest. Not only that, but this giant was aggressive. Look down in verse 23. As he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And then verse 25, So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. I'm emphasizing that phrase for an important reason. Compare what we just read with verse 8. He says, Am I not a Philistine, and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. He begins by being in the valley, shouting up to the mountain, saying, Hey, come on down. Get somebody to fight me. In verse 23 and 25, he's crossed over the brook. He's on their side, coming up, going after them, being more aggressive. 
That's why we read in verse 24, they fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. Goliath is so much like our adversary, the devil. He's such a picture of him, intimidating, humiliating, aggressive, defiant. And you know what? He never lets up. Do you think the devil ever looks at you and says, well, I guess you're beyond my reach. I won't tempt you anymore. No, he'll keep at it. In fact, even with Jesus, who was, by the way, tempted 40 days by the devil, same time that Goliath is spending here. It says in the New Testament, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He's like Schwarzenegger. I'll be back. And he would come back. Whenever our enemies challenge goes unmet, he becomes a little more aggressive each time. Looking for opportune times to come back and to get at us. Stronger than ever. Francis Thompson said, The devil doesn't know how to sing, only how to howl. Now, we don't face Goliaths, nine-footers, who are knocking at our door in our neighborhood to pounce on us, but we do face, in a sense, giants. Some of you right now are in school, and you are facing intellectual giants of modernism and philosophy. You may have teachers who the only time they would mention God or Christ is in saying that Christianity is passe, outdated, unintellectual, and the philosophies of Kierkegaard and Kant and Hegel and Descartes and Hume loom large over you. You think, I'm so small. This is so big. We all face moral giants. We live in a country that is pushing the envelope of morality to the extent that if you stand up and say, hey, hey, that's wrong, they'll look at you as narrow-minded. You're the problem. Some of us face personal giants. Maybe a sin that we've been struggling with over time. Maybe a fear an insecurity, a handicap perhaps, something that threatens to control the whole valley of our life, just to take over. You must understand that if you let that, whatever it is, go unchallenged and unmet, it will advance. you got to face it. Edmund Burke said, All that is necessary for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing. Let it go. It will take over. That's David's problem. I move you down now to verse 14. Let's look at David's, what I call, preparation. David was the youngest. That's the youngest of all the boys in the family. The three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. We didn't get to it last week, but David is part-time in the employ of the king. He is King Saul's personal stereo. Whenever Saul gets moody, David pulls out the harp and plays for him. And so he's working for Saul, but he'd have to go back to Bethlehem and still feed the sheep. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. Now, I want you just to see David's professional profile at this point. He is a musician slash slash shepherd. A musician shepherd. Plays for Saul, works for his dad. That's his profile. That's what he does. And God is going to use that background for his purpose. David will soon be called the sweet psalmist of Israel. 
He'll give us the bulk of psalms that have comforted Christians and believers for centuries. So God's going to use his poetic and musical background in the future. He's also a shepherd. And God's going to use his shepherding of sheep when he starts being the king of the country. All of the skills he's learned in managing flocks, he's going to shepherd the people of Israel with. And my point is this. We need to start seeing our lives now as a preparation for what God has for us in the future. Some of you have great aptitudes in certain things, or you've studied certain things like medicine or engineering or law. And you ought to begin thinking that God can take the background you have and use it to further His kingdom, who you are, what God has allowed you to go through. Let God use it. Now you might say, well, I really don't have very much. I'm very, very untalented. I'm not really educated. All the better in some cases. It's like the loaves and the fishes. Remember when they brought a few loaves and fishes to Jesus and everybody said, oh, what are these few among so many people? And Jesus said, bring them here. I'll show you. And he blessed them, broke them, and fed thousands of people with a few. He can do that with what little you say you have. He can bless multitudes. Speaking of preparation, look at verse 17. Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves and run to your brothers at the camp. Carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. So Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. David is not only the shepherd and not only the musician, he's the family messenger. They didn't have CNN back in those days. You didn't know how the battle was going. You couldn't watch it live. The only way you knew if somebody in your family was okay or to get news of the battle is to send someone from your family to bring them supplies and ask about them. That's what David was doing. Please mark that. David is a servant at this point. He's serving Saul as a musician. He's serving dad as a shepherd. He's serving his brother, bringing food. He's even serving his brother's commanding officer, bringing them some supplies. He is actively involved in serving people, and that's part of the preparation for slaying giants. You know the heart of Christianity is loving service? Loving service. Norman Schutten, and I have no idea who he is, but I just found a cool quote by him, said, We must realize that the symbol of Christianity is not a beautifully polished cross but a lopsided, crude, splintery cross over which is draped a towel. Not a lush, plush kind of towel we buy for the guest bathroom, but a dirty old rag wet with the sweat and dirt of men's feet. This is David, man. He's the next king of Israel, already anointed by the prophet. But what do we see him doing? Serving, preparing for giants. We go from that now down to verse 26. I call this David's persecution. David comes with right motives. He's going to be blasted for it. He comes close and he overhears the conversation that the men in the army are having about this problem guy named Goliath. David spoke to the men who stood by saying, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this? Now listen to his words. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine 
that he should defy the armies of the living God. This little kid is really mouthing off against this giant. These are words of great faith. Nobody else in the whole camp of Israel was talking like that. They fled. David, who is this uncircumcised Philistine, this overgrown midget? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Now don't forget who Eliab is. He's the oldest son. He was first in line when Samuel came in to find a king. He was the first to be rejected. God said, nope, I didn't choose this guy. He's tall and he's good looking, but he's not the one. He was not only rejected, but Eliab stood there when Samuel poured oil on David and said, this is the guy. He watched his younger brother one-up him for the king. Older brothers don't like this. And I think he's very jealous at this point. Not only that, David came to serve his brother, bring him food, bring news of how he's doing back to his dad. But David is being misunderstood and misjudged. And just mark that. When you step into service for God, be prepared to be misjudged and misunderstood. It's part of the territory. It comes with it. You will say or do things that... A lot of people could care less about the facts. They just take a little portion of it and they'll misjudge. They did it to David. This will actually mark much of his life. Not only that, but I'm listening to David's words. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And I'm thinking that it's not just jealousy. It's not just misjudging. I think he's a little bit irked, Eliab is, at David, because David has such faith and such courage And no one else does. Envy. Have you ever been around somebody intensely spiritual? Hard to be around. They make you uncomfortable. They have such a faith and a love for God, we squirm around them. They have what we lack. And so maybe even put them down to other people. My first encounter with one of these on-fire, born-again Christians is when I was in high school. His name was David. I met him in our high school. And I didn't like being around him. He made me squirm. I felt convicted. I think Eliab's feeling that at this point. Look what David does. Verse 29. And David said, What have I done now? He probably got this a lot. What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another. And said the same thing, and these people answered him as the first ones did. Most brothers would have wanted to punch Eliab's lights out. David didn't. He turned from him. He refused to engage. Proverbs seventeen fourteen. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. David could have said, you know, I'm tired of you. Let's step outside right now. You and me. Or he could have had a verbal backlash, but he didn't. He must have believed the old adage, a closed mouth gathers no feet or fists for this matter. And so he just refused to do it. 
You will kill more giants in your life if you learn to overlook the petty infighting that comes up between people. Just overlook it. Just move on. Don't stop and engage in it. I think that one of Satan's plans is to distract God's people with petty squabbles that will go on till Judgment Day and divide groups, divide families, and divide churches. The real enemy is out there. And if you expend all of your energy on this stuff, you won't have enough for giants. So David didn't expend any energy at this point. There's an old uh, monastery I hear in Babenhausen, Germany. Good old German name. And in this monastery, there are two sets of antlers that are interlocked. Two deers. They found them that way. Two sets of antlers. Evidently, the fight was so intense between these two animals, they locked horns so fiercely, so tightly, they never disengaged. And the deer starved to death. And so they've kept this in the monastery as a reminder. This is what happens if you just seek your own way, if you're after your own rights all the time. And I meet Christians, and all they do is fight and bicker over little points, and they starve to death. They don't get fed themselves. They just fight over things. And David refused. In Proverbs 19, a man's glory is to overlook a transgression. We're all familiar with 1 Peter. Love covers a multitude of sins. So he just turned away. This brings us now down to David's perspective. This is how he saw Goliath. He has a different altogether perspective than Saul or the rest of the army. It's classic. Let me just remind you as we look at some of these verses of the principle we found last week. Remember when Samuel came to find a king and God said to him, Hey, man looks at the outward appearance, but God doesn't. He looks at the heart. I think David must have found out about what Samuel heard because he's going to see a giant, but not the same way. He's not going to be worried about the outward appearance, the height and how big he is. First of all, back to verse 25. I want you to notice a comparison. In verse 25, the people of Israel, the army, they say, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. Compare their words to David's, verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See the difference? They say, the armies of Israel. David says, oh no. These are the armies of the living God. They're not just attacking any army. They're attacking God's people. And you know, God always takes it personally when you go after his people. Saul of Tarsus found this out when he was destroying Christians in Damascus and arresting them and killing others. He was knocked off of his horse. And Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not them. Why are you persecuting me? I take this very personally, you see. That helped his perspective. Now look down at verse 31. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him, for your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. I love it. Because David's perspective of faith was so strong, 
he's now encouraging the king and the army. He's not even in the army. Oh, don't worry about this guy. I'll take him on. No problem. People that have faith brought on by perspective always encourage others. They bring us up. That's why it's great to be around people of faith, not pessimism. Because pessimism will spread fast too. Faith can spread. David spreads it around. It's like Joshua and Caleb. They were two of the spies when the twelve were sent out by Moses. They came back and the ten said, Hey man, there's giants in the land. and Forget it. We're toast. We're not going. And it says, Joshua and Caleb quieted the people and said, Oh, let's go for it. For we are well able to overcome them. But the ten prevailed because just like faith spreads, so does negativism and pessimism. I found this quote. So many people stop because so few will say go. David said, come on, let's go. I'll go. But most people say, stop, won't work. We've never done that before. I don't like it. Not David. Another cameo. Verse 33 continues. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth. And he's a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by the beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Do you notice that once again David is graded based on his age? You can't go. You're a kid. You're a little kid. But he's a little kid with big faith. And he's a little kid with a track record of accuracy. He could fling that pebble from that sling and be so accurate. When David saw lions and bears, he didn't say, Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. He said, Lions and tigers and bears, all right. He was used to them. And now he looks at Goliath and says, These were just animals who were enemies. We're dealing now with somebody who's defied the living God here. Let me add him. What a perspective. Verse 37 is very noteworthy. He says, The Lord will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Where did this kid get such almost reckless confidence in God? The answer is simple. David had seen God vanquish lesser enemies in the past. And because he had seen God do such great wonders in the past with lions and bears, he figures if God can do that, then I'm ready for giants now. You don't start out in life slaying giants. You begin with lions and bears. You begin with the daily stuff in life, the hassles that come to us. How do you handle those? That'll tell us a lot about how you'll handle something big in the future. If you flunk lesser classroom tests, 
you're going to flunk Giants 101. But if you can handle lions and bears, you'll do fine with Giants. That principle is also found, by the way, in the book of Jeremiah, when Jeremiah says to the people of Israel, if you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how will you contend with the horses? And if in the land of peace they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? If you couldn't handle it when it was a lot easier, you won't be able to handle it when it's a lot bigger. Faith and perspective are developed by lesser battles. And his has been developed. Let's close out with David's performance now, shall we? Verse 38 and 39, David tries on Saul's armor. It's too big for him. It's too clumsy. You know, it's like a 46 long to a 38 small. I don't know. It, just, it, was a, it didn't fit. It was, he wasn't used to it. He hadn't tried it. David's assets were his youth and mobility. Saul was big, or excuse me, Goliath was big. But he would be slow with all that armor. David said, no, I'll just take what I have. So here it is, verse 41. The Philistine came and began drawing near to David. And the man who bore his shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth. There it is again. Ruddy or red-headed and good-looking. Goliath insulted. You sent me a good-looking kid. You know, he thought, I want a man. I want a soldier. He's got to look like a biker at least, you know. Not a good-looking preppy little shepherd boy. Red, oh, please. He felt insulted. And then, notice what he says. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? I'd like to answer that, but I won't. That you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. David's out with the shepherd's staff. Little stick. Oh, you're going to beat me like a dog, are you? And then the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Once again, like Satan, Goliath is filled with hate and venom and attacks David, mocks David's simplicity. Little did Goliath know the spiritual giant that he was facing in David. You know, dynamite comes in small packages. David was about to blow Goliath out of the water. Look at what David says, verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. This day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know the Lord does not save with a sword and a spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he shall give you into our hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine in his forehead. So the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. A physicist last night told me that a one-inch steel ball 
from a sling at 150 feet has more kinetic energy than a 45 military weapon. And it would just embed itself into Goliath's head. Verse 50, So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. I love this kid. He looks at Goliath and says, Okay, let's compare weapons. You have a sword. You've got a shield. You've got a javelin. So what? I come to you in the name of the living God whose armies you have defied. Do you see the perspective difference? The armies, including Saul, looked at Goliath and compared Goliath's size to their size. And they went, (gasps) David compared Goliath's size to God's size. And looked at Goliath and said, you poor fella. You're about to lose your head. You're going to be bird meat. Comparing the... If you're going to kill giants, you need a healthy view of the size of your God, not your enemy. You have to realize he's the God who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and there's nothing at all that's too hard for him. Martin Luther had it right when he said, with God, one is a majority. I heard about a professor who taught at the University of Southern California, USC, for 20 years. He was an atheist. He was proud to be an atheist. In fact, he would challenge his class on this topic as endlessly as he could. He taught for 20 years. At the end of every one of his courses, the last day of class, he would take a piece of chalk in his hand, and with the other hand, he'd raise it up and he'd point and he would say to his 300 or so students, if anyone still believes in God, stand to your feet. No one did. They were intimidated by this guy. He said, let me tell you something. If you believe in God, you're a fool. If there really was a God, he could stop this chalk from falling to the ground and shattering into pieces. Surely not too big of a task for the Almighty, but he won't do it because there is no God. And he dropped the chalk and it shattered and people, all the students would look. One year, a freshman joined the class. He was a Christian. He had to take the course to finish out his major. Heard about the professor, but he had to take the course. He took it. Last day of class. Takes a piece of chalk. The professor says, If anybody still believes in God, stand up. And the kid stood up. He said, I believe in God. The professor pointed and said, You are a fool. If there really was a God, he could stop this chalk from falling to the earth and shattering into many pieces. Just as he said those words, the chalk slipped from his hand, hit his shirt sleeve, bounced onto his shoe, and rolled unbroken across the hard floor. (laughs) And the professor became so livid at what had happened that he just stomped out of the room mad. And then the boy who stood up in the back of the class came forward to the front of the class and began sharing his testimony with 300 very attentive students at that point. He stood up. Whatever giants you face, whatever giants are around in your life, what kind of a person will face them? Number one, it'll be a person who has a healthy view of the size of his God. If your God is tiny, it won't work. If you see your God like David did, you'll be all right. 
Second, it's somebody who's prepared by God with the aptitudes He's given you and the ongoing service right now in your life. Are you serving? Are you active? Third, it's somebody who's willing to overlook pettiness and infighting among God's troops. Pass it over. Get on to bigger and better things. Fourth and finally, it's somebody who has seen God deliver lesser enemies in the past and kept him. It doesn't begin on the battlefield. It begins in the sheepfold, that daily stuff of life. Let's pray. Lord, I pray we'd be faithful to the challenges we face now so that when something so intimidating like this comes along, we would remember how faithful you've been already. That we'd have confidence not in sword or in shield, but in the living God. For the battle is the Lord's. Lord, you said in your word that we're to be doers, not just hearers, or we deceive ourselves. And so, Lord, empower us. Empower us, Lord, to see who we are, our natural gifts, talents, aptitudes, and spiritual gifts you've given, and how they can all be used to build up your kingdom. I pray that we would see that we should be serving each other now. And I pray, Lord, that we'd leave today realizing we serve the mighty God. In Jesus' name.